Thanks for tuning into the Zealous Podcast. I'm your host, Rocky Snyder. This week, I've got Matt Murphy in the house. And Matt, well, he's the head athletic trainer of the Houston Dynamo Football Club, MLS. And he happens to be probably the youngest head athletic trainer. We're going to find out how he made his way to the top, what he does with his athletes, and a whole bunch more. Be sure to tune in, subscribe, follow us on Instagram at Rocky underscore Snyder, and enjoy the show. Well, we have just finished Women's World Cup. We have just finished Leagues Cup, MLS, and Mexican Liga, and uh, spectacular, spectacular action. And now we're back into MLS. We're, we're fully into the season. You know, it goes through September and into October. And so why not have the athletic trainer for the Houston Dynamo, Matt Murphy, join me on Zealous this week. And Matt's got quite the story. He's he's living a life, but he's he's taken some some strides and certain steps in which to get there. So first, Matt, welcome on to Zealous. And then right away, after we do the introductions, why don't we just jump into your path of where you came from and where you are now. So welcome. Yeah, awesome. Thanks, Rocky. I appreciate you having me and I'm happy to be here. Uh, I started out in Wisconsin uh, from there and I went to a small school called University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire, where I got my undergrad and bachelor's degree in athletic training. I was still one of those few classes that still has a bachelor's in athletic training. After that, I popped down to West Palm Beach, Florida, and took an internship with Palm Beach Atlantic University, a Division II school down there. Got to work men's college soccer, men's and women's tennis, and a little bit of every other sport that the school had to offer. After that, Bumped up to graduate school. I got a, a GA position at Mississippi State University, primarily working track and field cross country and super lucky working there. Track program was incredible. SEC track. Got to work with some uh, now world champions, actually. Uh, Marco Arop just uh, won the world champions of the 800 meter. I was lucky enough to get to work with him as a freshman. So really cool experience down there. And then after that, moved on to soccer, which has always been my passion. So I jumped over to uh, Real Salt Lake Academy, which is the uh, MLS Next now is what it's called. But How did you get there? there? How did you land in Real? Yeah, so it's really funny. Uh, I'm not a huge social media guy, but stayed on Twitter, always trying to stay involved a little bit, more in a professional setting. And uh, I started following Theron Enns, who you had on the podcast earlier. Sure. Um, at Real Salt Lake. And he's been in the league a long time. Just wanted to see what someone like that who's active on Twitter had to say about pro soccer, athletic training, and kind of merging those together. together. Uh, and then one day he posted an academy job on Twitter. And I was like, oh, this is kind of a good potential pathway for me. So I applied via the Twitter link. A couple of days later, he gives me a call. I always joke with him. I said, you call me for 30 minutes and you talk for 20 of them. And the next thing I knew, you offered me a job. And I was driving with, packed up my car and drove from Mississippi to Utah and started two weeks later. So that was in February of 2019. Wow. So, very cool. February, 2019. And yep. well, you certainly moved up the ranks pretty well. I mean, if you started with the Academy, I imagine you went to the Monarchs before getting up to Real Salt Lake. Yeah, so after after the academy, I worked there for the calendar year of 2019. So the academy year followed the school year. So I finished out the end of the 2019 season in June, July, started back up again in August, and I worked August through December. 
there was an opportunity to get promoted to work with Real Monarchs, which is their second team. And I was lucky enough, Theron trust me enough to move me up, promote me, and then work started working there and then COVID hit. So I got one game of regular season there, took a couple of months uh, hiatus, staffing changes and kind of figuring out the world of COVID at the time. We were able to restart, so I was able to pick up that end of 2020 season in the USL Championship, which wasn't as uh, spectacular as MLS with a fancy bubble and whatnot. We, uh, they picked four teams in the league and just said, you're going to play each of these teams four times. So we got really familiar with those four teams. Uh -huh. but, yeah, it was a really opening experience. And then I spent all the 2021 season with the Monarchs as well. And then after 2021, there was another opportunity for me at Real Salt Lake. I was lucky enough and Theron had grown enough faith in me, trusted me enough and was generous enough to promote me again to uh, assistant athletic trainer with Real Salt Lake in Major League Soccer. Well, I got to say, you're, you're talking really quite in, in a humble fashion, exhibiting some, some humility and, and modesty for sure. But in, in all honesty, Theron wouldn't move you up in those ranks had you not had some significant skill, passion, and, and drive. So I, it, that must be the case. You must love what you do. I do. I, the, since I've been in high school, my goal has been to be an MLS head athletic trainer. So No way! Yeah. I, that I was your goal. That was your goal in high school, and, and you have achieved that. Yes. So I'm fortunate enough that you know, just over a decade after setting that goal, I've been able to achieve it. So I've... That's phenomenal. Okay, tell me, now that we have to get into like mental skills conditioning, in fact, I've got, we just last week, we had the mental skills coach for mm. Sacramento Kings on. So, uh, but I'm curious, did you mm. put like, how did you, how did you set the, how did you plant the seeds? In high school, that's what you wanted to do. But did you have, uh, post-it notes on your wall were they in your car like I'm going to do this did you how did you follow through because so many of us have dreams in high school and yet a very small percentage I imagine actually make it manifest um, I'm curious yeah so after high school there wasn't like a lot of written down things it was just kind of my mantra that I live by whereas this is the goal and everything I do is going to be trying to achieve that goal. My parents jokingly found some old books from like middle school, junior high. And they, I even had some similar ideas jotted down where like being around, like working in professional sports at that time, but soccer just always been my passion. I've always wanted to chase it. And I just put my head down and got to work and did everything I could. And, you know, there's bumps. In I the love road. it. I love it. Okay. But how about this then? You could have said, well, I want to be a soccer coach. I want to be an MLS head coach. I want to be uh, the strength coach. I want to be whatever. But you chose athletic training. And I have this feeling, and I correct me if I'm wrong, but did you suffer some type of injury? And then, therefore, you had this positive experience with an athletic trainer? And, or you just saw what was going on going, okay, that is the bomb. That is exactly what I want to be doing. How did it, how did it manifest? Yep, that's you got it exactly right. I 
in high school. I had a couple injuries. Uh, I was a tennis player, was my other sport other than soccer. Yeah. So right before the kind of the state round started, I suffered a bad ankle sprain and I went to an athletic trainer that was local, still lives in my hometown, and she was able to help me at least get on stage and get on that court for that match. It was painful. I didn't win at that point, but just for me, it was an accomplishment just to get on the court and partake in the in the match. So, and I give her a ton of credit. And at that moment, I realized like athletic trainers can give people hope and they can help help people achieve their dreams. So I knew my athletic limitations were <laughs> at a minimal and I wasn't going to go anywhere with that. But for me, it was just like, I could help people achieve what they've worked their entire lives for. And so I've always just tried to emulate and kind of match that with my life goals. So I want to help people. Well, I want to help people do the best they possibly can. I want to work with the best of the best and try to be the most driven out there. Sweet. Well, it sounds like you're on that path for sure. So uh, just to complete this journey in a way where you are now, you were working as the assistant athletic director at Real Salt Lake under Theron Enns. And then what happened? So finished all of last season with them, with Real Salt Lake. Had a phenomenal experience. Really lucky to work with that group of people. Um, started this, this season with them. Um, went through preseason. And then beginning of April, there was a job posting for the head athletic trainer for the Houston Dynamo. They had some shuffling and they had an opening. And I have a lot of friends around the league. I, I always pride myself on trying to meet people and get to know people throughout the league and make connections. And I just talked to some of my closer friends in the league and just asked like, hey, I'm thinking about this. Do you think I'm too early to try to apply or try to chase this? And it was kind of the opposite. It was a lot of feed, positive feedback of, no, give it a shot. The worst they can do is say no. So I shot an application and sure enough, then now director of sports medicine, Craig Devine gave me a call and within a couple of weeks, I was doing the same thing, except now with the family packing up, drove from Salt Lake City to Houston, Texas. And I just started in this position uh, very end of April. Uh, so I'm three and a half, four, almost four months on the job now. Okay. Uh, that's that's phenomenal one also you, i'm curious how many other head athletic trainers in major league soccer are roughly your age uh my wife likes to joke that she's pretty confident i'm the youngest head athletic yeah. trainer in the league i i think you are i think it's remarkable you shared before we hit the record button you'll be 30 in november uh yeah. that's a phenomenal achievement uh, so congratulations on that. And I, I'm curious. So you strike me as someone that's not necessarily satisfied with the knowledge that you have, that you're always seeking more and through that ga gaining more experience. Uh, so what elements inside and outside of athletic training are you pursuing right now? What, aside from just getting used to where you are, I imagine there's while you were under Theron and, mm -hmm. and coming up the ranks there, what piques your curiosity? So what I've really learned, especially in this, in the pro soccer setting is the value of 
knowing both realms, both your realm and the performance realm and mine in the medical. So right now I'm kind of working through my PES and my CES, my performance exercise specialist courses and my corrective exercise specialist courses. Nice. Um, just to be as well-rounded as possible because understanding communication between the two and understanding that they're all one spectrum. So you want to work from, okay, you're hurt. That's point A. Well, point B of healthy return to play, you're just multiple dots within that. So if you, and at some point you, there's a bit of a hand, a handover, but if you're knowledgeable enough and have the skill set to help throughout that process, you just make everyone in the department's life easier. So I can go from, here's my diet, here's my diagnosis of what the injury is confirmed with team physicians, imaging, if needed, all that, then moving towards the performance realm of how do we get them actually back onto the field? So that's where I've kind of aimed my current study right now. And then just trying to stay up to date on the latest techniques. I know dry needling is a really popular one that I found great success with my treatment methods. So I took that course four or five years ago now and looking to continue taking the follow-up courses as well. Um, I just think it's a very useful skill set and tool to have when treating athletes and treating patients. So out of curiosity, was that with Sue Falzoni? It was not. Um, it was the master dry needling course. Um, I don't remember what was his name. I would have to look back for his name, but, uh, he's, he's out of Texas. So probably in November, I'll be taking the second part of that class. But, um, no, this track, this course was, this dry needling course was more trigger point based, which mm. for me is kind of what interest in what do we deal with is this perception of tight muscles and trying to get releases and whatnot. So that's what I focused on. And it just aligned really well with my philosophies already. So that's why it piqued my interest to go towards that class over Sue's. Right on. So with injuries, mm -hmm. I mean, you're, you're sitting pretty well. I, all things considered, I mean, we could look at a few other teams right now <laughs> who seem to have, uh, more on the injured list uh, than they actually do on the active uh, active roster. I know that's not true, but they've, they've just got a lot. You're dealing with three athletes right now, names mm -hmm. withheld, but you've got a broken ankle, an ACL injury, um, and another knee-related injury, which let's just talk knees for a second because that is, I think, the bane of the MLS right now. Knee injuries of all varieties are showing up more frequently than any other injury. Um, what do you, what do you think the reasoning behind that is? And mm -hmm. like, how, how are you addressing that in your role? Mm -hmm. um, it's tough to say why the injury, the knee injuries that we've suffered both been a bit unlucky. Um, maybe you could relate it to fatigue base. Um, one was a player coming back from a different a different injury or a different illness. Unlucky moment. Again, is that fatigue-based? Is it just unlucky? It's tough to say. Another one happened in, in another – that other knee injury happened in a match. Contact-based, unlucky contact. So um, – but you always see – I mean, there's tons of theories thrown out right now. Is it more games being played? Is it surfaces being played? I mean – 
the correlation loves to be made on turf about turf and knee injuries. Um, but I think there's just varying degrees of surfaces. So you can, I've, you can play on good turf. You can play on bad turf. You play on bad turf. You're probably like more likely to get injured in all sorts of realms, not just, not necessarily just the knee injuries. So it's, it's tough to say, uh, but I'm sure there's a multitude of factors that we are ultimately, we are trying to push these athletes more and more. We're playing more games. We're training harder. We're trying to get stronger. And eventually there's going to be something that has to give. And a lot of times ligaments are, as you know, the things that don't adapt as much as muscles, tendons, bones. So it kind of makes sense, at least to me, that that could be the reason for why we're seeing an increase in those injuries. And when it comes to like taping of the ankles mm -hmm. on, on average, you know, with the NFL, it seems like they, they have cases and cases of athletic tape per game, right. With the mm -hmm. number of ankles that needs to be taped up to what degree, because I'm wondering about the restriction of an ankle would encourage more movement up the chain. Uh, yeah. Not that that would necessarily be the underlying culprit for all injuries, but mm -hmm. to, to what degree are you willing to tape up somebody's ankle? Like, do, do you know what I'm getting at? Do you, yeah, yeah. Is there a certain point where you go, okay, that's way too little movement there and, and that creates a risk elsewhere? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. From In my world, in the pro soccer world, you see a lot of like pseudo ankle tapes. So there's not as much restriction. And I say pseudo ankle tape, it's really an ankle tape but it's just not your traditional white tape football player ankle where you're trying to like restrict as much movement. Uh -huh. Essentially a lot of players that I've worked with, they like almost a, a second sock feeling. So it's a more stretchy tape. It's not as rigid. So it doesn't limit that movement as much. I've think I've only experienced maybe one or two players that do sort of some sort of like rigid ankle tape while playing soccer. A lot of them like kind of the stretch tape that gives them what a feel of support, but in reality, it's probably not really limiting their motion that much. Mm -hmm. So it, it's an interesting, it's an interesting point though. Good. And then while we're on the topic of tape, it just, and you say stretch tape, it just takes me to like KT tape, rock tape, or whatever brand we want to call it, kinesio tape. Mm -hmm. uh, how, how much do you utilize that as an athletic trainer or you know, is it, is it more of a fad? Is it here to stay? What do you think of it? I think there's a use for it. Um, I think from a true like science aspect, the most research or the most supported is kind of helping with lymphatic drainage. So you kind of have your acute ankle sprain and it blows up. It's black and blue and swollen. I've seen some positive effects from kind of drawing that swelling out of there. But yeah, I absolutely use it. If a player is like, hey, I really want some KT tape or dynamic tape on my knee or my adductor or whatever it is, I'm not going to say no to them, it, especially if it's on game day and a player comes to me, hey, can I get this? If it's, I know it's not going to do them any harm. So for me, there's no harm in doing it. The player wants it. Let's give it a try. In kind of the psychological realm that, athletic trainers especially at the pro level live in I think there's a place for it I think you can apply it to try to help an athlete feel like there's more support if they like the feeling of something on their skin giving them that added support so 
it has its use. Is it psychological? Is it physiological? Say it depends on who you ask. But for me, I think as long as it's helping an athlete and they believe it works, it's going to work. Right on. And and in regards to other approaches, like you mentioned dry needling. Is mm. that something that you do, like thinking of game day, because you just mentioned it. What, mm. what does game day look like for you? When do you mm. have to get to the arena? When, uh, you know, kind of take us through your, your game day approach. Yeah, so home game, for example, if we have, say, a 7.30 kick. A lot of times we'll have guys that either didn't make the roster or guys that are injured. We'll work on them in the morning. So I'll come in nine o'clock for a couple hours in the morning at our training facility, help with whatever needs to be done there. And then I'll typically arrive at the stadium probably four o'clock, 4.30 for a 7.30 kickoff. Players arrive at six. So the first hour, hour and a half is just getting everything set up, making sure we're organized as possible, making sure everything, excuse me, everything is prepped from, in Houston, we deal with the heat. So we have make sure our immersion cold baths are ready, all of our cooling devices, we use cooling vests as well, make sure ice towels are available, hydration is set up properly, uh, helping our, our dietitian here do whatever they need to do so things can be as ready for when the players walk in the door, we're ready to handle them. Once the players start arriving, we'll do whatever maintenance treatment a player may be doing. So if they're carrying a little knock here and there, we'll help work on that. Um, different modalities we use, even on game day. Um, we have a light force laser that we like to use. Um, we use a shock wave, which can be good for kind of those tendinopathies as well. Uh, and then just kind of loving, loving care, little massage, little rubbing the tiger bomb, whatever hot cream a player may prefer, just getting them ready and activated and uh, ready to go. And it could be, we may be helping leading them through some exercises as well. And then, yes, we get some taping in there. We got a handful of ankles we tape uh, on a daily and a couple of game days only. And then if, you know, a guy's feeling a little something extra, then we go down the route of a dynamic tape or kinesio tape, whatever we feel is best and work with them and, our whole focus is just getting guys fueled up and ready to go. So again, we help our dietitian with all the fueling aspects, making sure they have an appropriate amount of carbs. If they, if they're, if the guys do caffeine, we have the caffeine intake properly. We want to make sure they're hydrated. So they're pushing, you know, body armor with, to get some carbs in them as well. And just getting this, we're all about getting them prepared as ready as we can be, but Fortunately, game days, usually the easiest day of the week. We do most of our hard work leading up to it, just like the athletes do. And that's what I was getting a sense of, because it sounds like you actually do like a split shift. I come in in the morning, work a little bit, and then I take off and play a few rounds of golf and then uh, come back in. No, I'm just kidding. You're not doing that. But you probably get a little bit of breathing room on game day compared to just, okay, say um, game game day minus one, game day minus two. What What does that look like for you? How does that how does that compare in terms of your role uh, when it's not game day? Well, I would say for the, our side and the medical side, our busiest day is after the game. So either match day plus one or a lot of times for us, match day plus two, which when you get more of that dom soreness feeling, all we're trying to do is trying to get guys recovered and prepared for that next game on the next week. So 
we're pretty we have a pretty good staff we have a really good staff actually from the performance side medical side we have a full-time massage therapist we have another assistant uh, massage therapist that comes in and helps but we're just trying to get these guys recovered uh, a lot of times that means coming in on an off day for extra treatment again that's lots of hands-on we're trying to make sure the tissue is in the best state possible so that'll be massage your graston techniques your dry needling techniques um could be we still use cupping i know there's lots of controversy on that but oh is there what's what's the controversy with cupping uh there's a lot of debate in kind of our realm whether it's actually beneficial or if that modality can do harm because it does cause the bruising so i know in kind of the social media world of sports medicine it's very hotly debated whether is it appropriate to use because you're actually causing damage of birth blood vessels to the to the skin because you're not actually moving the fascia they say but so again. interesting through thousands of years of this technique thousands yes. of years of traditional chinese medicine and mm. the uh, the conventional world is is saying uh, we don't know about this. Okay, that's cool. All right, we I, I won't have to dig into that. You can read whatever <laughs> you, it is you want to read out of my sentiments just then. Okay, so I'm curious. There's so much hands on, like you say, match day plus one, match day plus two, and so on. But how much, especially now that you're getting your background in PES and CES, mm. how much do you? put the responsibility on the players like okay we're going to do this but you need to go over here and start doing these movements or i need you to get on the ground and do this or whatever the case may be that's so a lot of it i feel like is in the professional sports world is creating buy-in so if you can make them feel better even if you know it may not be moving the needle tremendously one way or the other if they feel better you're going to get better buy-in to actually do those things that they may be, they may be more resistance to like moving, like actually activating their muscles and moving through the moving patterns. Like they should be trying to get their bodies to a lot of what you do is trying to recenter them and get those, their bodies back to base through movement. I think movement can't be underestimated by any stretch of the imagination. The only reason that we choose to do more of the passive hands-on treatment is to really get players to trust us and to buy into that because that's what they want. That's what they're always asking for, especially in soccer culture. You get a lot of like South American medical staffs where that's all they do. And you don't have nearly as much prevalence of movement-based treatment and movement-based rehabilitation. So you got to work within the culture of the player to give them what they want. Then you can transition into things that, you know, will really help them. Uh, I'm glad you bring the cultural aspect up because that brings me to another topic that I'm very curious about mm -hmm. and, and how you decipher when um, you go out onto the pitch during a match, of course, the ref's going to wave you on and so on. Uh, but there is, Oh, how would we say it? Some embellishment, some drama. I'm not say, specifically saying the Houston Dynamo do this, but it has <laughs> been known in the soccer culture for a player to go to the ground and roll around um, numerous times. Now, I did have a colleague on not too long ago says that I just watch how many times the player rolls around and the, the more times they roll, 
the more I know that it's just a flop and they're faking it. The fewer <laughs> rolls, the more likely that's actually an injury because if they're injured, they're not going to move nearly as much. So yeah. I'm curious, like, how do you decipher it? Well, to be fair, that was a common uh, philosophy that I use as well as the amount of rolls. And then, of course, this past Saturday, I have a player completely debunk that. And I've never seen a player roll that many times. He probably rolled six <laughs> times, but he caught an elbow right here to the eye. And I get oh. out there, he's got a massive black eye when oh. me and the entire visiting crowd were kind of thinking, is he faking this a little <laughs> bit? But he was definitely not faking it. So, uh, no, I we're part of the game. And that's kind of why I like soccer as well is – it's the one way that we get to play our role. We have coaches telling us, take your time, take your time, kind of eating up that clock. <laughs> exactly. So oh, I get it. It is part of the, it's part of the strategy. It's part of the, you know, you work in the clock, just mm -hmm. like we might in, in basketball or, or football. You just do it in a different manner, but yeah. there you go. You just leave me from one question to the other. You're making my job easy, Matt. You really are. <laughs> this guy gets an elbow to the face. So that's most likely a subconcussive, injury which mm -hmm. leads me to the thought of concussions yeah. and of course there's a big push in the nfl with concussion protocols and so on mls mm -hmm. where are you guys in the houston dynamo how does that work what do you, what is there there must be a league protocol but how does it work within your own organization yeah so the the league is very strict uh protocols in this and they actually they're so they're trying to stay on top of it so much that they have spotters watching games. So they're independent observers that watch every match and they're in direct communication with our venue medical director, which is typically the home site's team physician. Or, and if, they, if the spotter sees something where, oh, that could be a potential concussion, they have the seven mandatory signs, like most leagues, the mandatory observable signs that we call them. And if they see one of those, then they have to flag it, send a report. They're getting the doc doctor involved as well. But if a spotter sees something like, oh, that could be a hit to the head, it could be something that raises the level of a possible concussion, they actually flag it in a match. And then I have to do all the documentation to say that we did a thorough examination on the player, both after the match and the day after the match, and then document that in our league uh, emergency, uh, medical record systems that this is what we did. The player did not show any signs of a concussion and we're actually tracking in players medical records when they don't have concussions because that's how in-depth and like concerned the league is with concussions at this point but so then when a evaluation does say or we determine that they do have a concussion we have a seven stage protocol that we follow so stage one is rest just recover, let symptoms die down, try to get as close to baseline as you can. Stage okay. two, light, aero light aerobic activity. Typically for us, that's going to be some sort of bike activity, or that could be just a spin on the bike, or maybe if they're symptoms resolve really quickly, they do a little bit more on the bike. After that, you move into moderate aerobic activity. That's going to be, again, depending on their symptom severity, a more intensive interval bike workout, or that could be some sort of walk jog run. So kind of meeting that moderate aerobic threshold. They progress through that and you can only move through a stage one day at a time. So you have 24 hours to let symptoms possibly pop back up. And if they do, then you can advance them through the protocol. 
So each day at the beginning of the day, you do assessments to determine that. And do you either stay there, regress back or advance forward? Exactly right. So after the moderate aerobic exercise, then you move into stage four, which is individualized uh, technical drills. So that'll either be someone on medical staff, someone on the performance staff, they'll take them, take the athlete through, in our case, kind of a position specific exercises on field, getting touches on the ball, getting some change of direction, getting some plyometric activity to see how essentially their brain responds to movement in all directions. Again, move through that. Then they get cleared into stage five, which in order to at stage five, you also need to follow up with our neuropsych. So we have a neuropsychologist that they need to meet with and they'll redo their baseline testing, which we do impact baseline testing. So the impact test, which most people have taken at this point, has kind of become the gold standard. I know a lot of high schools use it for their baseline testing. Um, so they'll, but this will be administered via our neuropsych, so then they can interpret the results as accurately as possible and try to determine if this athlete is actually recovering from their symptoms or if there might be some, you know, cognitive or vestibular symptom that is still hanging around or lingering around for this athlete. So once they give me the okay, then they're going to move into non-contact training sessions. So that may be kind of a bumper in the training. They're back in the team warm-up, um, trying to get them as involved as we can without the risk of definitely any sort of like head-to-head -head or head-to-arm contact, but also kind of we want minimal heading of the ball as well. So wow. after that point then they get it, then they're cleared for full training. So that's stage six. Stage six is great. You've proven that you aren't having symptoms of any sort of activity. Go do a full training session. They do unrestricted full training. And then we always end the session with a couple of controlled headers. So in case they didn't get that heading exposure of the ball in any of those sessions or earlier stages, we just check that final box of, okay, can you head a ball? Does that bother you? Just jumping, heading, moving, all good, great. And then the stage seven is available for game selection. So that's kind of, they're available to play and be in matches. So then you get the full intensity of a game, all the unpredictability that a game can provide. And then after that, they're cleared through the protocol. So, and that can take anywhere. Commonly we're seeing, you know, seven to 10 days. And a lot of that rests on how quickly the symptoms resolve on the front end. Which is, you know, all things considered, that's kind of aggressive. I mean, it's it, to be back on the pitch in, in seven days doesn't mean that it's wrong or anything. I'm just like, wow, that's a kind of somewhat of a quick turnaround. Uh, uh, yeah, very interesting. I love the the stages that you've laid out and truly appreciate you explaining it all because it sounds very thorough. I do know through my studies with different organizations for post-concussive, uh, post-concussion syndrome is that there is this you know our our governing wire to not go head first into a situation meaning like um somebody that's non-concussive will know when to put the brakes on mm -hmm. somebody that is post-concussive often that's inhibited so the likelihood that they'll go head first into another situation is actually accelerated so once we get concussed we have a higher likelihood of having repeat offense in a way. So to actually have that 
strata or that that protocol in place is is fantastic. How do, I I know just within let's just take Rayal Salt Lake as well because you've got a lot of experience there. How mm -hmm. well does that protocol work for your players? How often do you find that within seven to ten days they're ready to return to the pitch? I would say most of the time that's the case. Um, All right, in my experience. I've had probably 85 to 90% of the concussions that I've dealt with have kind of followed that seven to, tape, seven to 10 day protocol. Again, if an athlete has different symptoms, again, more like eye tracking symptoms or more vestibular symptoms, we'll give more attention to those because there's more treatment methods um, that we can do for that. Uh, unfortunately, I've had one athlete that I worked with that had a concussion that went on for a long time, six weeks or so, lots of interventions done, trying to get him back, eventually got him back for a sh short stint. Then in the off season, he suffered another concussion and we had to determine that his career was over. So it was oh. a really, really hard situation to go through both for the player and for myself because you feel like you're failing, even though you're helping that athlete long-term like I said in the beginning, just not being able to help them achieve that dream of playing professional soccer. You just feel like, could I have done more? Could I have helped you? But sometimes when you get to that, you have multiple concussions, you get to concussion four in their career, you just, this isn't good for you. You're at serious risk for life altering damage. And you don't want that. I don't want that. It's just not what's best. So. And that's a hard conversation. It is. It's. Wow. It's, there's some heavy stuff. Yeah, there is. Now your match schedule, typical like a weekend match and then one midweek like Wednesday and then a sa either Saturday, Sunday, potentially a Friday. So two matches a week on, on average, right? Uh, this year, yeah. Um, in the past, it's been a bit more single games just on Saturdays. Um, with Dynamo, we've been for fortunate enough to make a run at the U.S. Open Cup final. So we're actually playing – Inter-Miami and Messi at the end of September in the Open Cup okay. final. Okay, let's just, let's just geek out on that for a second. How giddy are you to be standing on the side of the pitch watching, I am sure he's one of your heroes, to just be present? Uh, and, and were you brave enough to kind of go up and say hi? Well, we'll see what, we'll see what September brings. But I know uh -huh. after, after we won on Wednesday to qualify for this match, and Miami had already won and already qualified, so as soon as this game is over, I go to the locker room, I look at my phone, and I have so many people saying, you're going to be on the field with Messi. Like, that's so cool, just from all walks, all different friends of life. And I'm like, it makes me reflect a little bit and try to be like, oh, that, that's pretty cool. That's a pretty cool experience to have. It is. I mean, you're you're surrounded by uh, immense talent as it is, but then there's there's talent that exceeds that and goes to another level. So that's and it's pretty cool that we get to experience here in the states, uh, right up close and personal. Yeah. So congratulations on the <laughs> open and and adding to that. What are your biggest challenges as the head athletic director, head athletic trainer? I mean, um, so for me, again, just being so young in my position. And trying to gain the respect of players, coworkers, because things aren't just respect's not something that's just given. So working really hard to try to earn their respect and show 
everyone every day that I deserve to be in the position that I'm in, whether that be coaching staff, superiors above me, uh, employees below me. I need to prove myself every day. And it's just try to make me really aware of the leader that I want to be and how to help people in the best way possible, even if they may be resistant to me helping them, whether that be career advancement, a player care person, head coach, giving head coach advice, just really just trying to, again, prove myself and show that I'm operating on a strong knowledge base and I'll, and more experience that I'm than the shows probably. So that's definitely been the biggest challenge for me right now. What's been the easiest part? The easiest part is just doing the athletic training aspect. That's, that's the fundamental aspect of it. So helping players, getting them ready for it, because that's the bread and butter. So uh, I'm lucky with some of the staff that we've had here has really helped me kind of adapt to the culture that uh, Houston Dynamo have established. And because that culture is one of the big reasons why I wanted to move to Houston with the Dynamo specifically. They've been a struggling franchise for a number of years, for over the last decade. They've had new ownership, new front office, new, new coaching staff, and they've set the objective of we want to win and we want to be successful on field. So they wanted Well, people- they're doing pretty well right now. They're above my quakes or, well, actually the points are tied <laughs> and you're just a couple points below Real and, and you're sitting pretty at fifth or sixth place in the West. So I'd say you guys are climbing the ladder quite nicely. Yeah, we're we've had a we've had great success this year again 10 more very important games left to play but yeah everything that they've spoke to me in this interview process we've been able to achieve in a very short time so it feels awesome to be part of an organization that is striving for that has set that objective and just to be a part of that i'm super fortunate to be there you know when it comes to the the evolution of success there. I think of the evolution of athletic training. I am, of course, taping techniques are not going to change all that much, right? But the way in which you approach your players, the way in which you provide care has evolved over, let's just take the last 20 years, since the, since the 2000s, since Y2K era, you know, what, what has been the greatest in your view the, the greatest um, strides or growth, like any landmark achievements in the field of athletic training as it relates to, to player care? I think the biggest thing is just kind of moving away from things that we didn't necessarily, weren't necessarily science-backed or science-based, like your use of kind of your stim and ice. They, that's always the standard. I mean, I'm sure you've heard it in every realm. You have, oh, throw some stim and ice. And I think as athletic trainers, once you move beyond kind of that, I would say it's almost lazy care where you don't, you're just doing very passive work. You need to be active and encouraging kind of this movement generation and this movement philosophy in athletic training and showing that strength and exercise is more important than the passive modalities that we do. I think that's been the biggest thing in athletic training because we are always kind of competing with physical therapists. That's kind of been the two career battles. And if PTs do something, ATs are going to do the next thing and try to stay as close to them as possible. Hence kind of the educational shifts where PTs become a doctor degree, athletic trainers, we're going to be master's degree. 
So we're always trying to chase that and show that we're just as knowledgeable, just as proficient as the PTs while also having the emergency care. Cause that's the thing that people don't always equate us to is athletic trainers are most prepped for the worst case scenario. I've had, you spoke of the ankle injury, that ankle injury happened a week into my job at Houston Dynamo. I was a week there. Player didn't even know my name, but he managed to fracture his fibula, dislocate his ankle. Um, wasn't a full external rotation ankle dislocation, but two years prior, I did have a full ankle dislocation wow. where in training, player came from behind, got his toe caught in the turf, just fully cranked his ankle. Player rolls up, you hear a big pop, and there's just his ankle hanging there. Just the and talus is rolling along the pitch. You have to grab it, put it in your pocket. <laughs> oh, my pretty God. Much. Yeah. Oh. So, and just, again, being being that calm voice, ready to help the player in whatever you can until kind of the uh, EMS arrive on scene, but knowing how to handle those situations and, again, kind of putting – doing the easier relocations. I've, I've had shoulder relocations. I've had finger relocations. You just, athletic trainers are ready for that stuff as well. So it's a very important part of our profession that differentiates us from physical therapists as well. Sorry, that, didn't, yeah. that diverted your question a little bit. No, solid points to, to be had. And yeah, it's, it, it's uh, paramedics on the pitch, basically. You, you are ready for your first responders essentially is that. And yeah. I think people don't consider it, like you say. Uh, <laughs> yeah, ice, stim, tape, you know, the, the old school rooms with the, with, with the aluminum table, just hop up on there and so on. It's, it's come a long way. And, and the fact that your answer speaks volumes as to why you are where you are right now, that you don't take the easy way out. You're not on lazy street. You're not just going to throw an ice bath and and do some muscle stim and say okay you know get on the bike for five minutes you're good because yep. it just doesn't work that way uh, yep. the the one the one recipe for all just doesn't work all right matt this has been an hour almost we've just been cranking through i can't believe it already i i say that almost every episode but <laughs> i get so into these conversations that time flies by but i i know you don't do much in the regards for social media but you did mention twitter you you were working on that like if people want to say, just check out your exploits, where can they go? Yeah. Um, so my handles are going to be Matt Murphy 64 for pretty much any platform, Instagram, uh, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, search Matt Murphy. There's a hunt, there's millions of them, but uh, should be one of the few that has some pro soccer experience in there. So feel free okay. to reach out. Whenever. <laughs> cool. And then and the last question I really have is, for individuals, um, I'm going to say your age or younger, right? The, the aspiring, because honestly, you are in the demographics of the listening audience, you know, 25 to 45, typical males uh, that are interested in athletic training, personal training, strength conditioning, and so on, physical therapy. Like, what advice would you give some of the listeners that in high school, they wanted to be the head athletic trainer of a major league soccer team or, or NBA team or whatever the case may be? What advice would you give them? Biggest thing is you got to do the work and it's not always glamorous. It's not always rewarding, but the pathway is it's worth it. You just got to put that, put your nose down, do the work. 
you can't get caught up on little things. Uh, we're in a world where things happen, bad things happen, things that are frustrating or annoying. You got to push through that. You just got to stay true to your path. And when you believe in something, just stay believing in it. Well, that's some sound advice, Matt. I can't thank you enough for taking a little time out of your busy schedule to come in here and, and share some experience and strength and heck, even some, some hope for those out there. So thanks for coming on. Absolutely, Rocky. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. That's a wrap for this week. You guys, hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Go Houston Dynamo. Let's see what you can do for the rest of the season. Thank you, Matt, for coming on. And for the listening audience, have you hit subscribe yet? If you haven't, take a lap and then click the button. We'll see you next week.